Pursuing your future doesn't end at 40. In fact, it may mark the beginning of knowing who you are, what you're capable of, and what you really want. But knowing what's next and how to get there can be a challenge, especially when old narratives play on repeat. Liberty Road is here to share stories so that you can consider your possibilities, pursue your purpose, and move into your future with intention. I'm your host, Netta Jones, and we're here to listen, learn, and liberate dreams one episode at a time. Hello, Liberty listeners. Welcome to another episode of Liberty Road. We are thrilled to have Melanie Wolf, co-founder and co-CEO of Brella with us this morning. You guys are going to get to hear what Brella is all about, and you're going to get to hear how she and her co-founder, Darian Williams, launched this awesome platform, a really unique platform. So I'm going to let Melanie take it from here. Melanie, welcome. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you. Tell us, just to get started, what is Brella? Well, Brella is basically childcare reimagined. So we're taking the traditional model of childcare and reinventing it for today's families. And we're doing it in a couple of ways. The kind of main way that we're doing it is by making it more flexible so that it can really respond to families' daily needs instead of being a limiting factor. And, you know, that was a really important part of our mission. But as we dove more into the childcare industry, we saw that there were a lot of other opportunities to make it better. Yeah. You know, everything from design and the look and feel of a traditional center. My business partner, Darian, is an architect and you know, when we toured centers and experienced them, we just realized that they weren't designed with the the right intentions. And then also, I think everybody has heard about sort of the challenges of early education and being an early educator. And, you know, what we've also seen is that, you know, there's a lot of opportunity to improve this industry from the provider standpoint and the teacher standpoint. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of ended up rebuilding it from the ground up, which you know, it wasn't the original intention, but I think has made this such an exciting project. And so Brella at its core is just child care centers that look and feel really different from your typical one. Uh, we have our first one, which is open right now in Playa Vista, and we are just a couple weeks away from opening our second one in Hollywood. Awesome. Awesome. That's exciting. This podcast, I think, will be hitting right about the time you're opening that second one. So that's awesome. Just really quickly to go back, you talked about it wasn't what you originally were kind of focused on. Were you originally focused on the concept and then you reworked the actual physical space? Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's the fun part about starting a business is it's complete (laughs) evolution and you know, we, we actually do look back a lot at our original decks and ideas. And, you know, the original idea, it was rooted in childcare and it was rooted in a different approach, but it was trying to kind of merge this childcare work and wellness piece of people's lives. And so we actually had like a gym attached to it and a whole co-working space. And, you know, that vision I think was originating from the fact that we were struggling so much to balance all of these aspects of our lives as parents with this huge challenge of childcare. And so the original idea was kind of bringing them all together. But 
as we did research, as we really understood what the problem was, we realized that the issue is not that they're not housed in the same location. It's that childcare is not supporting families' ability to participate in their careers and participate in their own personal wellness or even their own personal ambitions. And so the issue is that the foundational kind of structure of childcare is really broken. And is that partly like you drop them off, then you can't sort of engage, and then you pick them up, and you're not really sure what's happening throughout the day? Is that part of what you were addressing? It is. It's a little bit. But I think the, the biggest problem is that Childcare, the childcare system really hasn't had any innovation or progress since the 1970s. So the model that we experience today as parents is exactly the same as the model that really originated almost 50 years ago. Wow. And the biggest challenge is really in the schedule. And for a lot of families, the schedule just doesn't match with their work day or their personal lives. I see. And so, you know, a lot of schools, they're either Monday through Friday if you're lucky, they're nine to five, but a lot of the times they're nine to two and they have lots of big breaks. So many schools are closed over the summer. Right. That's like this agrarian ca- calendar that is totally not relevant to the lives we live today. But for some reason, our schools are still rooted to it. And, you know, these these limitations really require massive sacrifices for families in order to pick your child up at two or three o'clock you know, you might have to stop working at that time. Yeah. And that's going to limit, you know, your ability to take that promotion or take that work trip. And having to navigate big breaks, you have to find alternate care, which can be really expensive. Yeah. And so it just felt like the system is set up for families to really fail, especially in a world today where people work really dynamic schedules. They work on the weekends, they work in the evenings. And you know, this model is just not responsive enough to support all of those needs. Yeah. And and more than ever, right? It, interestingly enough, more than ever, it's a dynamic schedule. It's funny, my kids are a lot older, but I every time they hit midterms or final schedules, mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. go to school from nine to 11. I'm like, who are these parents? Because yeah. I can't be there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what am I supposed to do? Yeah. And it's always a little bit of an issue. Like, we're tied to the school schedule and it's, it is not their responsibility to really look at how the family is living. So short answer, I need Brella for high school. <laughs> when, tell me when that's coming up. <laughs> All right. That's our next project. Okay. Okay. Call me. What did you specifically do? You talked a little bit about Darian being an architect. Give us a little bit of your background and what led to you thinking you could do this? Like, what was that all about? (laughs) I'm not always sure I can do it. But uh, (laughs) yeah, my background, you know, I started in the advertising and marketing world. So out of college, I went right into the advertising industry I worked for big consumer brands like Johnson and Johnson and yeah. Schick and Energizer. And, you know, I got this great foundational background in how to build a brand. And it was amazing. And I, I really loved that career. I went to business school uh, with actually the goal to become a brand manager at Johnson and Johnson. And then while I was in business school, I got really excited about new technology and new media. 
and had the opportunity through an amazing leadership program at GE to go into a rotational kind of program at NBC because GE at wow. the time and owned yeah. NBC. Yeah. And I ended up working for brands like the Olympics and Bravo. And at the time, got to do really cool things like create the first iPad viewing app, which, you know, today seems so regular. And, and we made the first interactive experience with Twitter wow. with a real housewife show. So it was really fun. And I really got to see, you know, how technology can connect people to brands in a really unique and powerful way. Yeah. And, you know, it was a really awesome time in my career. And then, you know... What was interesting is we, my husband got a job opportunity on the West Coast and we decided to take advantage of it. And when we moved out to the West Coast, you know, I had this sort of stall in my career Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. I also was having children at that time, which, you know, I think contributed to that as well. And I was in a real rut at that time. And one of the issues, which I didn't really understand at the time, was that childcare was kind of holding me back because I hadn't kind of gotten a job. I didn't feel comfortable lining up childcare, but I really couldn't interview and actively look for a job without childcare. And I had this tension that I was kind of battling internally with, you know, what comes first? Do I get the childcare before I get the job? And I think this is a real challenge for a lot of families and a lot of moms, especially. And at that moment, I actually connected with Darian, who had been thinking about how to kind of reinvent childcare for the modern city, because she had been working on all these urban planning projects. And, you know, it was this big aha moment for me that, you know, I didn't have to just accept the system that was holding me Mm. back, that, Mm. you know, I had reinvented brands and I had, you know, this great knowledge of how to create wonderful experiences. And I could bring that to this space, which really hadn't had anybody think about that before. That's awesome. I have to ask because, and I'm going to show off a little bit because you're not, Um, you went to Princeton, you went to Columbia, you mentioned the massive brands you were working with and a part of. Was it ever hard for you to think about being an entrepreneur and working with something that didn't have the cachet of where you had been before? That's tough, right? Yeah. To not be able to say, I came from this school or I'm you know, working at GE or Bravo or whatever. Was that tough? You know, it wasn't tough, but I think my 20-year-old self would not have accepted that. And yeah. I've been on a personal journey, which, yes, I think I've, for most of my life, really up until like my late 30s, it was a path of achievement in this sort of public arena. Like, you Uh know, what school is going to be the best and what brand is going to be the best. And, And you're right. I think this period of kind of being a little lost Mm. and kind of getting knocked off that track was a really important step in my life. I actually had never had any interest in starting a company. I, you know, in my time at Bravo, and I did do a little stint with a venture capital fund, I always looked at entrepreneurs like like these foreign people. (laughs) Well, they are. 
they are. Come on. <laughs> and honestly, it didn't appeal to me. It felt very, you know, uncontrollable and stressful. And yeah. and so, yeah, this isn't a life vision of mine. I, I wasn't the kind of person that started businesses in college. And, you know, and you hear that sort of traditional narrative of what an entrepreneur looks and behaves like. And I didn't fall into that. And so I sort of wrote that option out of my own story for so long because I didn't really believe that I had what it took. And I think, you know, what is interesting is that experience of having children and you really see that you can change and you Mm. are not locked into the person that you were two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. And I think that that's a really powerful experience to be able to have somewhat later in your life. Yeah. Thank you, by the way, for saying that and being so honest about it, because I believe that there are so many listeners that are going to hear that and they've felt the same way. Maybe they haven't even been able to articulate that, that that's not for me. That entrepreneurship is for a certain kind of person, a certain sort of mind. They have to somehow be affiliated with somebody that's in Mm -hmm. Silicon Valley. They have to be raising millions and millions of dollars. That's not who I am. Or the person who perhaps has come from a more traditional trajectory and feels like being alone, even with a partner, feels very foreign. I'm used to having a team. I'm used to having the scaffolding of uh, structure. And that's very different when you're an entrepreneur. So I thank you for saying that, because I think that's going to mean a lot to a lot of people listening. Mm -hmm. I hope so, actually. Yes, it will. It will. And so you've already said you didn't think you wanted to do your own thing. Like being an entrepreneur was not a goal of yours. What changed your mind? Was it meeting Darian? Was it the concept? Like what sort of was like, I think I can do this. I'm willing to be one of those foreign people. Yeah, it definitely was both of those things you mentioned. So, you know, I connected with Darian so quickly and I felt so comfortable going on in this journey with her. Hmm. And I think that that made it feel safer and it made it, it made me feel like I wouldn't be alone. And I think you're right with that. Like that sense of solitude or isolation is a really paralyzing one. But no, I think like the real thing was like, I just caught the bug of solving this problem from day one. And that is something that, you know, I have heard a lot from entrepreneurs is that you just, you just can't stop thinking about work. And yeah, I personally had never had that experience. Like I was always totally fine just checking off, you know, I I walked out the door and I wasn't going to think about work. And so this was the, this was the first time in my life that I found my mind wandering while I was on a run to like solving this problem. And I think that that was really what drove me to want to do this. And, you know, I still am that way and it hasn't really faded. So I think, you know, being really passionate about whatever problem you're solving or, you know, the company that you're building, that is such a key piece of this. I couldn't agree more. I was just having brunch with some girlfriends on Sunday. And I said, if you would have said to me a few years ago that I was going to be focusing on midlife, like what this issue is and people starting something at this point, because I had spent the last 20 years as a consultant for small businesses, women-owned small businesses. And this seemed like a departure, but it was my own issue. It was the things that I was hearing from other women, like, what business do I have leaving the law and starting a company? 
or I've missed the boat. I'm, you know, we often say uh, on this podcast, like, I'm not a digital native. I don't know where to get started. It seems like you have to, you know, be an influencer of some sort before you can do that. And it's just not the reality. The reality is, if there's a problem that you want to solve, if there's something that you're passionate about, it's almost like you come at it from the point of view of launching a movement or a nonprofit. Like you really start to think about how you can move the needle. And in your case, solve for women who were in your position and continue to be in your position that just don't have access to Brella yet, yet. Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, you're right. And and what you're saying is so true. You know, I think a lot about, well, could I have done this earlier in my life? And the reality yeah. is like this problem didn't exist for me when I was yeah. 20. And it didn't exist for me when I was 30. I mean, this is a problem that I had to live. And I think that's also really exciting because I think that there are so many exciting problems to solve that don't mm-hmm. just solve 20-year-olds issues. And, yeah. you know, that means that every entrepreneur and, you know, small business founder can't be 20 years old. Like we need people solving 40-year-old problems and 50-year-old problems and 60-year-old yes. problems. Yes. And you really can't do it well unless you're living it or have lived it. And I really believe that. I mean, I joke all the time. I'm like, I think I have to have another child because my youngest <laughs> is aging out umbrella. And I'm like, I've got to stay relevant. And so I'm just going to have to have babies until, but you know, y- y- it does make you so much more knowledgeable and passionate and connected to the problem when you are really living it. Well, I can save you from having a child and that's just to come up with Brella for high school. We've already discussed this. So you're welcome. You're welcome. Perfect. Thank you. My husband will be happy. Yeah, you can tell him. I'll give him my address. He can send me a bottle of wine. You talked a little bit about the kind of fast connection with Darian and feeling so safe. Talk to me about that relationship. Like, did you guys meet socially or did you hear about kind of what she was trying to do? And then give us a little bit of that background. Yeah, we were matched. So a colleague of mine connected me to Darian. Darian had actually reached out to her to see if she knew anyone who would be interested in starting a business with her. And our friends thought of me. And yeah, it was like a cold email. And, you know, our friend basically said, you're going to be the co-founder to, to this business. And I want you to meet Darian. And oh, my gosh. So, yeah, it's kind of a crazy story. And it, and it honestly is is really magical and it does feel really serendipitous because from day one, you know, Darian and I just connected on this incredible level and we worked together so well. And, you know, she is my rock. And when mm-hmm. I'm down, she brings me up and I hope I do the same for her. I'm in sure. Situations. I'm sure. But we're not super complimentary in our skill set. We're actually, we have a lot of overlaps. And at the beginning, a lot of people kind of raised concern over that. And they're like, well, you know, you got to have like the analytical one and the creative one. And, you know, we're actually more similar than we are different, Mm -hmm. but we both have just such clarity on the vision of this company and we're very aligned And, you know, we have a really strong working relationship, which we've invested time into. So I'm not going to say it was just super simple and it all clicked. I mean, thank you for not. We put in the hard work to make sure that we had clear communication channels that we, you know, could raise issues and give each other feedback and feel comfortable doing that in situations where we needed to. But, you know, I could never imagine doing this without a partner and especially not without Darren. 
That is sweet. I'm excited for her to hear this. And I know if she was here, she would say the same. Rarely are those relationships that one-sided. When it's good, it's good because both people feel the same way. I want to lean into this particular question a little bit more because I think a lot of people come into partnerships because they're best friends or because they both like balloons or whatever, like something that isn't necessarily related to the day-to-day. What are the things that you did when you talk about you guys really worked on it? What are some practical things that you did that alleviated future problems and dealt with the problems that you were going through at the time, whatever those were? Yeah, I I think I came into this partnership with this inherent skepticism that mm. it could work. And, you know, my husband and I had close friends who had started a business together and they had started as best friends and it ended in a really horrible way. Mm. And to this day, they still don't really talk. And, you know, I think I had seen that as the model and it really made an impression on me. And I think it, it gave me pause when I went into this. And, you know, honestly, in our first few meetings, I raised this to her and, you know, we decided that we were going to kind of invest first in almost creating a false conflict to try to see how we would work it out and establish guidelines and structures for, you know, when we disagreed and when we had issues, like how we would handle that. And so, so smart. Probably before we even like started concepting the idea, we started concepting our partnership. And, you know, we actually have like a hilarious spreadsheet of, you know, who we would go to if we disagreed on something and needed to mediate it. And, and, and I think it was, it was probably a little aggressive and I don't know if everybody has to go through that, but I do think it is important to take that time to kick some of the tires around that partnership. And, you know, I think the other thing too, is that we do really focus on equality between the two of us. And I, and I do think that's really important and it doesn't mean that everything's fair. You know, I do a podcast, she does, but like that doesn't work like that. Right. But yeah. it is, it is really thinking about, you know, giving each of us a voice and making sure that one is not perceived as more important than the other. And, you know, it, it is really intentional. I think you do have to be intentional and you have to constantly check in. And I'll say one other thing that has been really positive for us Please, is that, yeah we've always worked in the same office. So we, I, you can probably see it. I'm in a little square box, but her desk is right here. And, you know, we work really closely together. And so we can just look over and, you know, give each other an eye roll or, you know, like ask a quick question, but that proximity is incredibly important for us too. Yeah. I said before that partnerships and everybody has, not just me, they really are like marriages. And it's just, it's the same thing that happens, the same sort of natural wedge that happens when you're not having similar day-to-day routines, similar situations. You know, if you're in a long distance relationship, it's difficult. It's, it's, it becomes a heavier thing to manage. And when you're working on a business and the business needs all of your attention, um, like mitigate those, those hard things, by really paying attention to the relationship and to the partnership. When you guys, when you guys decided that you were going to do this and you were going to become partners, did you ever institute anything that was like a regular, like quarterly check-in, like, how are we doing or anything like that, that sort of becomes a, a little tool for our listeners? Well, when we started, we did, well, we were both in the process of having, or have had just had 
I think our second children. Yeah. One of the things that was really difficult was like figuring out our schedules and finding time to meet, you know, and again, we were taking care of our kids. So it was coordinating whatever little childcare we could find to be able to meet somewhere to bang out a presentation or a deck to try to fundraise. So we did, we actually set a really strict schedule up front so we could plan our lives around it. And you know, in those times where we came together, we spent a lot of time working. And, you know, one of the things that I wish we had done more of early on was more kind of socializing or just Um, getting together and actually just talking about something that wasn't the business. And I think we felt so much pressure because we didn't have a lot of time to work that when we got together, we had to work. And so, yeah, we had a weekly cadence of meetings where we did come together and work together. And then we did a lot of phone calls. Weirdly, Zoom wasn't like a thing when we first started, which was only like three years ago. I mean, I don't know. We weren't like doing a lot of Zoom. That would have been great. I feel like, yeah, I don't have like a great like quick tip, but I think just establishing a routine with each other and being on that same routine was really helpful for us and, and gave us room to plan our lives and to make dedicated time for the work that we needed to do. Yeah. Well, you've already given us some tips with the sort of creating these fictitious situations <laughs> that, you know, just how would we each handle this? And yeah. it's so nice when it's to be able to do that when it's not loaded with emotion and all of those things to sort of play it out reasonably. Cause then it's almost like you build muscle memory. You're yeah. like, oh yeah, that's how I said I was going to act. I better try and act that way. Or that's how I was going to respond. Yeah. And I mean, one thing that we're so aware of in early education is kind of understanding how people learn. And, Mm -hmm. you know, everybody doesn't learn and everybody doesn't hear and receive feedback in the same way. And so learning how your partner receives feedback and needs to hear things. And, you know, sometimes they need to hear it in a more direct way and sometimes they don't. And being able to kind of become fluent in your partner's needs is something that can be really successful or make a partnership really successful. Yeah, that's, there's been about two or three things here that I'm like, make a note, we've got to shout this out. This is a tweetable moment. Mm -hmm. You also talked about the fact that you guys had a lot of overlap in that relationship. Mm -hmm. How did you overcome that? Because you're now talking about these early childhood sort of ideologies, right? neither of you come from that space. So tell me like, where did you overlap? And then how did you fill in the gaps for the things that you needed? I mean, the big overlap is in the design space. So, you know, I come from the brand design world and she comes from the architectural design world. And you can see that in our, in our brands, you can, you know, the design is so forward and it is important and it is intentional and it's not a vanity play. There's actually a lot of intention around the design for the success of early learning, but we didn't want to divide that. And we both brought a lot of great perspective. And then we also saw that we both really aligned in our vision for the design. And so we have gotten pressure from, you know, investors, like, well, you got to divide this up. And, you know, we've made a conscious decision that this is a piece of the business that we both want to own. And We do. I mean, obviously, Darian does the architecture, but, you know, we make those decisions together and and it works. I think that we've proven, you know, you don't have to have really clear divisions of labor all the time as long as you know how to come to a decision together. 
and you don't create confusion among the team and you don't create any type of bottleneck or delay. And so, you know, we make fast decisions. We make sure that if something comes up to us that we can respond to it quickly and we can have an aligned consensus there. But that's that's sort of where a big overlap is. And then, you know, the other side of it is that there were huge gaps that we neither of us had any expertise in, one being early childhood education. We're total outsiders. We, you know, didn't go to school for it. We we didn't really understand it. And in that sense, I think, you know, we both did everything we could to learn about it. But we've also surrounded ourselves with people who are Mm -hmm. experts and who we can trust and go to. And so you know, I hope that we're the proof that you don't have to have this perfect mirror opposite to make a, you know, partnership work. But um, so far, it's been going pretty well. And it will continue to. We're not going <laughs> to jinx it here. And also, I think what you said before, like, you don't have to have that perfect division if what you do have is a really sound relationship is a relationship where there's a lot of mutual trust. Like oftentimes people have to divide that because there needs to be complete ownership in order for them to go forward because there's a lack of trust. And that's not because they necessarily think the other person's bad. It's just Mm -hmm. they don't necessarily 100% come from the same place. So I think the exception is because you have an exceptional working relationship. And I think that's something important for us to hear. When you talked about the the gaps, did you think that, I'm projecting a little bit here, that because you didn't come from early childhood education, it helped you guys to think outside of the box a little bit? For sure. Yes. I think that's one of our advantages is that we aren't rooted in the traditions of the system. And you know, in order to enter into early education, you need to go through like a big training. You know, these are highly skilled laborers in this industry and they go to school specifically to learn the rules of the game. And the rules are presented in a really rigid way. And, And then oftentimes what happens is you go and you work in a traditional center and that's how you create your foundation and then that's your expectation. And so, you know, there aren't a lot of outsiders that come into this space Mm. and there aren't a lot of new perspectives. And, you know, I came in right away and with my background in technology, I was like, why don't we just bring technology into this? And it's amazing how little technology has penetrated this industry. I mean, we're deep into the age of technology and yet most childcare centers still accept payment through checks. And so it's, it feels almost like a trip back in time when you go yeah. and look at, the, at how yeah. this industry is working. And there's no reason there's, I think that was one of the first things that we were really questioning was, is there some fundamental reason why this industry has remained immune to really progress? And it's not, you know, I think it's just because the industry is very siloed and it's very isolated and it doesn't get an injection of you know, new perspectives in the way that you see so many other industries do. I don't want to fault any particular gender here, but do you think that if more men had to deal with the issues around childcare, that there may have been an earlier response to the needs? Probably. I mean, probably. And I think, I think in a weird way, you are seeing it more because I think fathers and and men yes. 
are being injected yeah, more into childcare these days, especially with the pandemic. And you see that they're kind of like, what the hell's going what on is here? This? I mean, yeah. yeah. And, and yeah, I mean, I think there is more questioning overall about it. And so, you know, it is, it's one of those things where, you know, Derry and I laugh all the time. We're like, why are we the ones to have to solve this? Like every parent has felt like this is not working. Like this is not, you know, just something I realized. And, you know, now I'm bringing to the world, like this has been a broken system for a long time. And I think everybody who participates in it realizes that, but I don't know. It, it also feels kind of like a black box to a lot of people. Yeah. Where I think people just feel like, well, it's this way because it's this way. And I don't really know anything about early childhood education, so I'm just going to leave it that way. But the reality is, you know, it's created a really difficult road for parents right now. And it is an industry that deserves to be looked at from a new perspective. So because you just said a lot of people haven't paid, I mean, they know the problems there, but they haven't sort of attacked it and said, we're going to be we're going to be the ones that sort of make this Herculean effort to to move this forward. And you guys have. So now you have the issue of there's proof of concept out there. Like people can look at Brella and say, hmm, that's a good idea. Maybe we can mimic that and, you know, create our own brand around it. But then there's also this kind of good will sort of thing that's happening where you're like, yeah, we're we're testing this out. We're making we're making strides to put this forward. Uh, we're being progressive about how we look at early childhood education. Come learn from us because there's so many people that have this issue. Does that make you think, oh, we need brellas everywhere, or does it make you think we're proving that there's another way to do this, and we know that other people are going to, with the best of intentions, sort of copy the model? Yeah, I think both. Yeah. So our vision is to have umbrellas everywhere. And, you know, with the opening of our next three centers, so we've got Hollywood and Pasadena will follow after that. And then a fourth coming online. I'm in Pasadena. So oh, really? I will oh, shout great. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yes. Um, you know, so our vision is to create a network for families. And so when you enroll in one umbrella, you enroll in all of them and you can use them as you travel throughout your city, as you travel throughout the state or the country. I mean, imagine a world where you have a business trip and you can take your children and have built-in childcare wherever you go. Yeah. And it's not impossible. This is a real opportunity. And so we want to build that. And that is very much our vision. But, you know, this isn't a winner-takes-all kind of industry. I mean, it's a huge market. And Right now in our country, there's at least three times the demand than there is supply for child care. And, you know, I don't really know any other industry that would have that dynamic. Yeah. It's really crazy. And so, you know, we don't want to take the burden of solving this for everybody. But if we can encourage somebody to look at this and come up with their own model or have the courage to even open a traditional center, like we need more. We need more options. And so I, I do hope that we can create more momentum in this industry and more excitement about it. And that would be a huge triumph in its own right. Yeah, no, it's amazing. And it's a it's an absolute game changer, as you said, for mothers, for families, and for children. Like the benefit that they're getting from a thoughtful, intentional program versus this is how we do it. We we're not there's not a lot of regard for how 
early education in general is changing. So they go into kindergartens and kindergartens and first grades are very different and they're, they're looking at things in a different way. So we should be priming that pump with kids who are prepared for that. Yeah. Zero to five is the most important time for brain development. And our country spends the least in preparing and supporting families at that time. And, you know, other countries are really far ahead of us and they set their children up for success. And, you know, at five, a lot has kind of been formed in a child's Mm -hmm. brain and in their behaviors. And so we do need to invest in this time. And, you know, we have an incredible curriculum that we've created, but, you know, we need to make sure that all children of this age are getting exposure to the right ways to learn because we know we have, there's a lot of data on how children should be learning at this age and it isn't being disseminated well. And so, yeah, it, it is a bit of a crisis and it's something we as a society should really care a lot about. Are you impacted? And I, we've been derailed because of a pandemic and now we're in a global crisis with what's going on in Ukraine and Russia, but are you influenced by legislation that sort of focuses on, we need to really bolster that zero to five time here in America, like our kids are way behind in math and our kids are failing in, you know, certain parts of the country. And are you paying close attention to that? And does that impact what Brella does or doesn't do kind of its next move? We are. And it does impact us. But I think right now we're just really hopeful that early education is actually in bills and it's being talked about at a federal level, at a state level. And it's on the cover of the New York Times. Like it is in the conversation. And when we started the business, it wasn't. And so even in three years, there has been a shift in an understanding. Now, have have the legislation passed that we'd like to see? No. But the fact that it's on the table is a huge step. And, you know, we hope that we can be a part of that as operators. You know, we see a lot and we learn a lot. And, you know, we already are reaching out to Sacramento to talk to them and educate them about what we see and how our model is impacting the community. And so it is really a goal for us to actually help shape that legislation to support more innovation, to support new models, and to really start to increase supply in a meaningful and relevant way. So I I think the takeaway there is just how we really need to be paying attention to what's going on in our industry outside of our siloed. We, We can get in a bubble really easily and be like, this is what we're creating. This is what we're doing. And it's important to see what's going on and what the greater need is. Um, and the greater issues around it. Yeah, it's true. And and we're small, right? I mean, we've only got one sensor operating, but we are having conversations at a really senior level with the state government. And I think I never would have believed that. I never would have mm. thought that, you know, a small business like ours could get the ear of a state senator. And you can. And I think that was a really big learning that, you know, even if you feel small, you can still have really big and important ideas. I I love it. Can you tell us for those of us, I've had the the pleasure of looking through your website, of seeing the design of your space. Can you talk about maybe just two things that are focused on the curriculum and two that are focused on the physicality of the space that are really the secret sauce of Brella? So the curriculum is a play-based curriculum, which 
for anyone who isn't super familiar with that, you know, children learn through play. And instead of doing worksheets and, you know, everybody sit down and we're going to run through the ABCs, it's teaching really important academic concepts, but also social and emotional concepts through play. So a lot of our activities are sort of presented as a type of really fun experience for the children. But our curriculum is really intentional and it is focused on really developing a child's compassion, curiosity, and confidence in themselves. Mm. And we also start at the age of three months. So we have children wow. that age that are at our center and they're exposed to our curriculum. And you know, that is really important to us. You know, learning doesn't start at three, it starts when you come out of the womb. And we really want to be there to support. And one of the big things that we want to do is also bridge that school to parent gap and help bring the parents into that learning experience so that they can also play with their children in a really meaningful way at home. So we provide a lot of resources to our families every week to help them kind of extend that curriculum that their their children are experiencing in their homes. And then when it comes to the center design, if you walk into a Brella Center, I think the first thing that you would notice is that it feels very open, light and airy mm-hmm. and almost kind of sparsely decorated. And, you know, what we found is that oftentimes childcare centers have this very frenetic, tons of toys, lots of colors, super stimulating type of environment. But the science really shows that that children need to feel supported and calm in order to really be able to develop cognitively. And so what we've done is we've chosen colors that promote you know, either a sense of calm or a sense of sort of inspiration for them. And we've really stripped down the classroom to just what it needs to be. It's all filled with natural materials, but it does have a sense that, you know, you're not overwhelmed and you're not distracted and you can, you know, focus on this particular sensory activity without having a lot of things competing for that attention. It's a really beautiful space. It's a really thoughtful and intentional space and a calming one. And I think that that's really important to childhood development. That's amazing. It's amazing how much you guys have from your partnership to the physical space, the way you even met, like it's all been very intentional. What have you learned in launching Brella and going through this process and all this focused effort? What what have you learned from it? I think the biggest lesson I've learned personally is that change is okay and mm-hmm. instability is okay. You know, my mom always told me that if you're looking for stability, prepare to be disappointed. And, you know, I learned that growing up, but I think I didn't really, I never accepted it. And running your own business, running one during a pandemic, I mean, we've had so many changes and so many challenges and and really hard obstacles. And I think we've overcome them in a way that now I kind of, I feel more comfortable with change. I don't love it, but I know it's not a failure when something doesn't go as you wanted it to go. And, you know, I think back at like my, the 20-year-old me or the 10-year-old me who you know, was chasing perfection all the time. This is very liberating to feel this way. And it's very powerful. You know, you you just feel like, okay, I can handle what's thrown at me instead of, you know, really putting armor up and trying not to ever see 
the dynamism of life. And so, yeah, I think just a general, a general ability to embrace change is, is something that I've learned. So everybody who's listening to this can, they don't have to read their Brene Brown for the day. (laughs) Melanie Wolf has given them what they need. That's awesome. So before I let you go, we go through this fun little fast five. So I have five questions for you. You actually hinted at one at the very last one, but we'll come back to it. So what is a favorite hack or practice or book or something that you lean into on a regular basis that has really helped you in this kind of midlife stage in your life? Hmm. (laughs) <laughs> I have such like a silly one. Those are the best. This is probably not what you're looking for, but early in COVID, uh, we were having a hard time finding a cleaning solution for the center. I don't know if you remember, it was like impossible to get yes. cleaning yes. And yes. It was really stressful. We were open and we needed to clean the center. And I was doing research and I found this solution called hypochlorous acid, which I heard this very romantic description. It's like when lightning hits the ocean, but it's it's basically like ionized salt water, but it kills viruses and, but it's safe enough to eat and ingest. It's made out of table salt and water. And so we had it at the center, but then I kind of became obsessed with it. And I realized that it's actually really great for skincare. And so there's a brand out there called Lumion, which I use. And I swear it's like my big fat wedding like Windex, like I'm Windex. Anything, my kids are like, I've got a rash and I just spray it on them. It makes everything go away, but it's totally natural. And yeah, I feel like that has been sort of my beauty hack and my like skincare, hack, awesome. my, you know, what's this rash hack, but it is, yeah, it's, I hope that's a, that's exactly what we were looking for. That's awesome. That's a great one. Okay. And then what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? Oh, butter pecan. Butter pecan. Oh, mm-hmm. I think the next episode that's coming on, we interviewed Jenny of Jenny's ice cream. And mm-hmm. I think I think it's butter pecan. I might be saying it wrong, wrong, but I think that's their like best, their number one selling flavor or something oh. like that. So you'll have to have theirs. There's a Jenny's across from Brella Playa Vista and I have visited it one or two times. Yeah, <laughs> many <laughs> times, I'm sure. <laughs> Um, and then what is it that you're loving about this particular stage of life? I just feel very comfortable right now. Mm. Like not comfortable as in like, oh, I'm like lounging on a couch, but I just feel comfortable in myself right now. Yeah. I guess I maybe just feel like I'm not chasing the same external goals or approvals that I had been for so long. And I I feel weirdly in control in probably the most out of control time of my life. And wow. And like I'm making more choices than having choices be made for me. So yeah, and it feels very it feels just very freeing to be able to to be like that. That's awesome. It's a, it's a gift and one that I'm sure we want for our children, we want for our friends. It's a gift to be able to feel like that in your own in your own self, in your own mm-hmm. skin. What advice would you like to give your younger self about your midlife self? What do you want to say to her? I want to say, stop trying to live somebody else's dream. You know, I think my twenties were really chasing, you know, a, a goal that wasn't mine, but one that, you know, others had for me. And I, you know, worked really hard and I, and I thought that would make me happy and it just wasn't authentic to me. And I, you know, 
it, I really struggled with that. And, you know, I think my, the, my 30s were really the breaking down of that, you know, and so my 30s were really rocky because I really had to kind of unchain myself from other people's expectations. And I wish I could have freed myself earlier from that, for sure. But I think I had to go on the journey that I did. But I do wish that I could have used my 20s more to explore my own dreams and my own understanding of myself, because I think that's such a wonderful time to do that. Yeah, it's such a unique time. Yeah. I have an 18-year-old daughter, and that's a constant conversation. And to be honest, it's hard as a parent. You do impose some things because you feel like you know what's waiting for them. On the other hand, they need the freedom to discover who they are and what they have to give the world. So that's awesome. And then you hinted at this earlier, but how has starting your own venture liberated you? Well, I think I think it's given me a sense that I can have an impact on the mm. world and I can change things for <clears throat> the better, in my opinion. But, you know, I think when you do work for big companies, which I had done for most of my 20s, you do feel like you're a cog in a machine. And, you know, there is this sense of, well, I'm part of something big, but I'm not really making the change. And I think starting your own business, you really are the reason that the change is happening. And you're mobilizing it, you're bringing the energy to it. And so there's a big sense of responsibility, but then there's also this sense of impact that you have that I've never felt before at any time in my life. That's amazing. Melanie, it's been a treat to talk to you. I want to have coffee with you. I thank you for, I feel like you've given, in sharing your own story, you've given so much insight and I think inspiration to those who will be listening to free themselves from some of those expectations, to try and be the person that actually makes the difference in, even if the problem is overwhelming. So thank you. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for showing up this morning. I appreciate your time. Well, thanks for the opportunity. And absolutely keep telling these stories. They're really important. Yeah, I think so too. Thank you for saying that. Liberty listeners, thank you for sharing this time with Melanie and I. I'm sure you've learned something. I hope this has been the inspiration you needed this week. And we will come at you with another story next week. Take care. Liberty Road is broadcast on all platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and more. If you like what you've heard, please follow, rate, and review Liberty Road on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It helps us to know if these episodes are inspiring and equipping your ventures. Liberty Road is produced by Netta Jones and Elizabeth Joy Windham and music by Jordan Flower.